You're listening to the Recoveredish podcast. I'm your host, licensed therapist Amanda E. White. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I am so excited because Catherine Morgan Schaffler is here. Welcome. I'm so excited you're here. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Well, if anyone doesn't know, do you want to share a little bit about your work and your book? Sure. So I am a psychotherapist and I wrote a book. It's a nonfiction book called The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control, A Path to Peace and Power. And it's really this containment area for so many patterns I noticed in my work. You know, I've worked in a lot of clinical backgrounds. I was working on site at Google here in New York where I live. Um, I worked in a rehab. I ran a private practice for many years. I've worked in residential treatment. So like all these different kinds of spaces. And I saw that some iteration of perfectionism was happening in all those spaces. And I looked to the research to kind of understand these patterns. And I realized that the way that we think about perfectionism is so myopic Mm. and it doesn't really get to the broader view of this like kaleidoscopic thing that is both positive and negative and everything in between. And it is a real power. And I think it's like perfectionism is this natural human impulse. Mm. It comes from a really good place. And yet everything, every single book talk, article about perfectionism is like, here's how to stop being a perfectionist. And that doesn't work. It's like telling a romantic how to stop believing, like being a romantic or telling an activist how to be like an activist half the time. It's right. like, these are identity structures. Like you can't just tell people to stop being them. You know, yes. we have to figure out how to be ourselves mm-hmm. and also occupy our impulses from an embodied intentional place. That's how you figure this stuff out. Not by trying to eradicate it (laughs) from your personality. Absolutely. And no, I love how you talk about how essentially there are positives to it because I do think that that is important to acknowledge. I think sometimes what's missing just as we're talking about personality traits or habits in women, there is often this idea that like you said, you have to eradicate this or this is bad. And a lot of coping skills, right, work. up until a point, and then there are drawbacks. But if we just come at it from this place of we have to just be totally different, we are actually missing out. There are a lot of perfectionists who are very like successful, who get lots of work done, and to try to just tell them to function totally differently isn't possible or necessarily helpful. Yeah. I mean, so the research shows that there are Adaptive and maladaptive perfectionists is like the research term, but it's like healthy and unhealthy perfectionists. And why is that? Why are some people who are very perfectionistic leading really joyful lives? And why are other people who are perfectionistic totally miserable? Like what is the difference between those two people and the way they engage with their worlds? Yeah. And really it's just about punishment. Like perfectionism is zero people's problem. Mm. Perfectionism is never the problem. It's mm. how you respond to missteps that is the problem. And whether you respond to your missteps, and this is true in every theme of recovery, yeah. whether you respond with self-compassion or punishment determines whether you are in a healthy or unhealthy space. 
Yes. I love that so much. One of the biggest transformations for me when I was getting into recovery and when I was working on it was I would even think that if I had a thought that I wanted to drink or I wanted to binge and purge, that I was bad. Just the thought, right? I hadn't even done it yet. And that would make me do it because I would be like, I'm a bad person. I suck. I clearly, right, like don't value recovery. And that would lead me right to doing it. Thank you for sharing that. So we think of perfectionism as a behavioral Mm. thing, like, oh, I want all the, you know, towels to be perfectly just so. But perfectionism, I discovered, can be expressed in so many ways. What you're talking about is cognitive perfectionism, which is like, I need to think a certain way about something. Or there's also emotional perfectionism, which is like, I need to feel empowered that I'm not drinking, or I need to feel happy or proud of myself because if I've been sober for 90 days and I still don't feel that, like I'm doing something wrong clearly. Right. No, not clearly. What's happening is that you're holding this ideal, this like pie chart in your head. I do this with my parenting. It pops up a lot where I'm like, I I give myself permission to be frustrated, but I can't be that frustrated when Mm. it's just that it's taking a long time to put on her shoes. (laughs) Like I have to be like proportionally, I have to have a proportionate emotional reaction in some way where it's like, I know intellectually, of course, emotions don't work like that. Right. And it's okay to feel and think whatever you want to, feelings and thoughts, as you're pointing out, Amanda, are very different than actions. Yes. Yes. Oh, I love that. I relate so much. My daughter is seven months old now, so she's in this phase where she's like learning her voice and kind of screeching a lot and things like that. And I get really, really overstimulated very much more than my husband. And if I don't catch myself, I very much fall into this doesn't make sense. What's wrong with me? Why am I, you know, I love her so much. Why do I not want to be around her? And it's really Mm -hmm. hard when I see how chill for lack of a better word he is when she's like making tons of noise but it's like I just get overwhelmed and shut down so easily and it's you know some of us were wired differently and it's not my fault and I can't control it a hundred percent and what's really interesting is it works in the positive way too where we Mm. deny ourselves like we're like I shouldn't be this joyful from just having 10 minutes to myself in the morning drinking tea Mm. or like it shouldn't make me this happy to be doing this. And we kind of try to talk ourselves down from the positive emotions too, because we're like, this doesn't make intellectual sense. It's just a little thing. Why is it so important to me? And that can also be dangerous because just because other people don't necessarily extract as much satisfaction or joy or pleasure or whatever as you do, that mm. doesn't mean that that is a little thing. You know, oh, like that. there's really no such thing as a little thing. Yeah. There's just what you experience and like whether you want to do that more or less. Well, yeah, this was what we were talking about of pleasure and how this kind of all relates. Will you talk a little bit more about the connection between perfectionism and pleasure? Sure. So we think of pleasure as this hedonic, superfluous thing in our lives, right? Of something that is to be experienced in the future and in a highly proportioned way (laughs) because we think of pleasure as like the thing that comes after being an adult Mm. and being responsible and being productive 
And pleasure is actually central to our mental health and personhood. Like if you don't trust yourself enough to understand what feels good to you, not just what sounds on paper like it should make you happier, feel healthy, but what actually feels good, you can't grow or change, Mm -hmm. right? So pleasure is this thing that only we as individuals can access. Like what feels good? Which people feel good to my nervous system? Which Mm -hmm. activities feel energizing to me? Mm -hmm. What do I feel about this? And yet our culture kind of teaches us that we should really map out and and sort of like plan our lives more than we should feel our way through them. We don't really know how to do that. And so pleasure and perfectionism and addiction intersect because we don't know the difference between immediate gratification and pleasure. And the difference between immediate gratification and pleasure the way I think about it mm-hmm. is there's this model that these brilliant researchers came up with called the AER model. So it is anticipation mm-hmm. of an event, the A, the event itself, and the recall of the event, mm-hmm. the R. So it's really talking about it's it's not the event that gives you the entirety of your experience. It's anticipating the event and recalling the event that actually creates a sense of, oh, I really loved that, or I really didn't like that, right? So it's like, think about getting a 20-minute coffee with someone you absolutely do not ever want to see or talk to, and you're like, well, (laughs) it's just 20 minutes, like it's just a quick coffee. It's like, it's not a quick anything. It's the week leading up Mm. to that 20 minutes where you're like, I don't want to do, oh God, that's on Wednesday. And then it's the recalling of the 20 minutes where it's like, I was bored the whole time. They said the thing I knew they would say, which is why you don't like them in the first place because they say (laughs) unkind things or whatever. Or on the positive side, it's like, think about a first date with Mm. someone that is really hot and smart and kind that you're really excited about. Like the date might be two and a half hours, but you look forward to that date for like five fabulous days, you know, and then you close the door after the night and like are thinking about that date. And it's just like you get so much pleasure out of that, right? So immediate gratification and pleasure both feel good in the event part, Mm -hmm. right? They both feel good at the E part of the AER model. Immediate gratification though often does not feel good in the anticipation. It's Mm -hmm. often surrounded by anticipatory anxiety of like, ooh, that thing is happening. Oh, that that like work drinks thing is happening on Friday. I hope I don't drink too much. Yeah. Ooh, am I going to drink too much? No, I hope I don't. And, and it's kind of like a little gray. And then in the recall, you're like, oh, I drank last night. Like, I wish I, I wish I wouldn't have done that. How many yeah. times am I going to learn? Like, da-da-da-da-da-da. And you get into this punitive self-talk. It's like, that's not pleasure. Yeah. That's immediate gratification. And don't get me wrong, immediate gratification will take you down. Yeah. But pleasure will never take you down. Mm. Pleasure will only bring you to center. I love this. There's like so many light bulb moments that are going off in my head right now. I mean, I totally – I mean, I think about my wedding because I had more fun planning my wedding and anticipating my wedding <laughs> than I did the I like day that. of – and I, I did learn that, that so much of, right, like how we remember things and so much of 
our memories around things are really the anticipation. And I think that's really cool. But I didn't think about the opposite because, yeah, when I know it's very interesting, this is just illuminating a lot of differences between me and my husband because he probably lives more in the moment than I do. And I, if I have something on the schedule that I really don't want to do, but I'm doing it, I dread it so much and will spend so, and he will be like, it's not that long. It's an hour, whatever it is. And I didn't have the words to understand why it feels so big and bad. And it's exactly what you said. It is the dread of it that happens for a very long time and the stress and the anxiety around the event. Yes. And we are over-indexed on the event itself because we see that as the main source of our joy or dissatisfaction. It's not the main source. It's not even half the source. Mm. And so, you know, this one famed therapist asked a great question of what kind of vacation would you plan if you had no memory of it? People are like, oh, well, what's the point of even going on vacation if you're not going to remember it, you know? And it's like, that's a good question. That's about how important recall is to us. And again, like you can use all this stuff in a positive way of like framing pictures of happy moments and inviting yourself to encounter these positive recall moments of just think about, I mean, I think when we're all trying to grow and change, personal growth is really marked by this invisible, intangible these moments where uh, so many times I've been in session with someone and they've been like, guess what? And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, they were like, my ex-boyfriend's birthday went by and I didn't hmm. even realize it. And it's like just a, a, a quote unquote little thing, yeah. but it signals to them like you're healing, you're changing, mm-hmm. you're thinking about other things, you're focused on other people. And There's no way to commemorate that necessarily unless you do those things yourself. And so trying to create little markers in your life, even Mm -hmm. if it's just a list, it doesn't have to be like a framed photo or something, is important because recalling the things that matter to you helps buoy you through the inevitable, you know, stress and sorrow that comes with being a human being. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that so much. I love the question about the vacation too, because I also think an interesting way to frame that would also be if you were surprised with a vacation, right? And you didn't get to plan and anticipate it and like co-create the lead up, I wonder, right? I think about it in terms of social media, right? In terms of pictures, if you couldn't take any pictures right? On vacation, like how would that change what you did? Sometimes I think I can end up on vacation weirdly as like, what are all the things I can accomplish on vacation, right? Like if I end up somewhere that's really interesting, it's like, well, I need to go to this museum. I need to do this. I need to do all of the things that people on the internet say that I should do so that I can have these conversations with people and talk about, you know, all this stuff that Mm -hmm. I did. And it becomes this like, perfectionistic checklist of look at all the things I did on vacation. (laughs) You know what? You are bringing up the most important thing, which is like the difference between a goal and an intention, right? So if your intention on vacation is to be adventurous, which it sounds like you are an adventurous person and you want it, that's a value of yours. You want to animate it. It's not what you do. Intentions Mm -hmm. are not about what you do. They're about how you do them, Mm. right? And it's not about whether or not you do them. It's about why you're doing them. And so 
goals are just a clear demarcation of something. Like yeah. you did go to the Met or you did not go to the Met, yeah. right? And if you lead your life through what you just described, mm-hmm. which and, and same with your sobriety, yeah. right? Like this is where counting days really comes in heavy, where yeah. it's like, do you want 50 days of sobriety? Mm. Great. That's a goal. Understand that until you imbue that with intention, mm. it's not really going to move the needle for you very much, right? Yeah. Because if your intention is to heal and maybe build at least one burgeoning quality relationship or at least develop like a new coping skill and you get to 50 days of sobriety and you're still hanging out with the same people that make you feel like shit and you don't know anything about who you are because you're not allowing yourself to encounter the actual pain, you know, you're just literally not consuming alcohol. Like you are accomplishing a goal, but you're not accomplishing the intention Hmm. and you can have 3000 days sober and still be the same exact person. Yeah. And that happens often in recovery. It's like we don't drink alcohol, but then we – you know, start eating a bunch of sugar, start overworking, or like yeah. we just trade our numbing for something else. And that's not healing. And that's where pleasure comes in too, because if you don't give yourself access to actually feeling things, you don't feel pain, but you also can't feel pleasure. So you can't create a path for yourself. Yeah. We think numbing makes us feel good. Numbing doesn't make anybody feel good. It makes you feel nothing. Yeah. That's the whole idea of you can't selectively numb, as I know Brene Brown kind of talks about, is that you numb the bad, but you also numb the joy, the pleasure, all the things that make life worth living in some ways. Yeah. And so, you know, I think this gets tricky in the recovery space because it's like, well, how do I like sometimes I just need to come home and watch dumb shit on Netflix like yeah. for three hours? Yeah. How do I know if that's numbing mm. or if I'm restoring myself? My goal is not to move through life with this enlightened welcoming of all pain and pleasure and every feeling and experience in like HD. Yeah, I don't think that it's. If you are up to big things, <laughs> I don't think it's possible because unless you're just this like Zen person that can just spend all day welcoming all of the negative. Unless you're a super being, right? Yes. If you're Eckhart Tolle or yes, totally. <laughs> Buddha or Jesus or somebody, then g- good for you. I'm yeah. happy for you. But the, the way that you could tell the difference is like restoration makes you feel good. Mm-hmm. So if you come home and you watch TV all night long, the next day you're like, thank God I did that. I really needed that. Yeah. I'm really glad that I did that. And again, like numbing doesn't make you feel good. It makes you feel nothing in the moment. And then often when you're recalling the event, Mm -hmm. you feel tinges of guilt or stuckness or some kind of negative experience. Yeah. I love that. I normally use the question with clients of how am I going to feel after this? You know, like, because like you said, you were on the couch for three hours, but you feel restored afterwards. It is a pretty good indicator. Or if you needed to sleep and you skipped doing something, but you slept and you feel better after sleeping, it's a good sign that you probably actually needed to skip that thing. Because one of the biggest things, and I'm interested in how you answer this question, people will ask me is just how do I tell the difference, right? It's so nuanced to understand 
what is self-care? What is self-sabotage? What is the difference between being kind to myself, giving myself a break, and letting myself off the hook, which is one of my least favorite phrases. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and in terms of giving yourself language, for me, language is like a lighthouse to me because it helps me really think, take my meandering thoughts and like, and create bullet points of understanding. Because especially when you're in the moment, you're just feeling and thinking so much, so confusing, you know, it's just, it's confusing for everybody. And I think, you know, when you're restored, you're regulating. Mm. Even though I've been in the counseling space literally since I graduated college, it's embarrassing to say, like, I didn't really understand what people meant when they said emotional regulation (laughs) for like many years. I was like, wait, what is that again? (laughs) Oh, it's, you have to learn to feel your feelings. Like for some reason that took me a long time to like really understand because it seems so simple, but that's what emotionally regulating means. It doesn't mean that you get to this place of emotional neutrality where you're like, I don't feel too mad or too sad (laughs) or like to this or whatever. It's like, you're not, you're not trying to ride the middle line. You're just trying to understand what you feel and, and you're not allowing that feeling to dictate your actions. Mm. You've made space for it. And so, you know, restoration regulates, whereas numbing represses. Mm. The goal of numbing is to shove that feeling down. Yeah. And so that's another way to tell the difference. But to your point of like, how can you tell, you're talking about the difference between punishment and personal accountability. Yeah. Let this idea that being self-compassionate is letting yourself off the hook and it is not taking personal accountability, which is not true at all. (laughs) If I, I told my editor this so many times, like if I could wave a magic wand and get anybody reading The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control to understand one thing, it would be that punishment doesn't work. Yeah. And that's what working in a rehab really taught me more than anything else was that the people who were really able to actually recover and become more of themselves and learn from the mistakes that they made were not the people who came up with the smart punishments. There's no such thing as a smart punishment. Like it's an oxymoron. The people that were really able to recover were the ones who were able to give themselves compassion because you know, Dr. Harriet Lerner talks about this a lot. In order for you to take accountability, you have to be standing on a huge platform of self-worth. Mm. You have to say, you have to be able to say like, I am a good person who knows how to do the right thing, but I made a mistake. Yeah. Why did I make that mistake? What do I need that I'm not getting? Who can help me that I haven't connected to? And you start to look at options. When you feel like shit which is what punishment makes you feel. The only point of a punishment is to create pain. That's how you know if you're engaging in punitive behavior or not, Mm. is you ask yourself the question, am I creating more pain for myself? And if the answer is yes, then your strategy is punishment. And the grand grand plan is I'm going to heal myself by hurting myself. Mm. And I'm going to whip myself into shape and make myself feel so badly about this that I I pivot. And it's like, we don't pivot when we feel bad. Yeah. We just like crawl under the covers and do more of the stuff that's familiar and comforting to us, which is often self-destructive. When your stress response is activated, you can't tell the difference between good familiar mm. and bad familiar. 
all you register is comfort. Yeah. The familiar is comforting. It's like, that's why we have that expression, the devil you know. Yeah. You know, it's like, okay, I know this. I know drinking tonight is not going to be good for me, but I also know it's going to make me feel better. It's going to give me comfort. Yeah. And the more, again, the more stressed you are, the less you forget that like, oh, this is bad familiar. And all you can see is the comfort of it. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's really important to engage in self-compassion because that reduces your stress response Mm -hmm. and helps you to feel better. And only when you feel better and stronger, that's when you're making healthy choices. Not when you feel really terrible and when you feel gross and when you feel like shit. That When you feel all those things that I just said, that's when you're like, well, fuck it. I might as well do this because I already ruined it or I already, you know, Blah, blah, blah. We all know that narrative so well, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I keep thinking too of – so I worked in a rehab for a long time. I'm I'm interested if you had this experience too. The level often of just punishment that is like interlaced in like the curriculum of a lot of rehabs is just crazy to me when I think about it in that way. And it wasn't until I ended up running – the long-term women's program, which was like a 90-day minimum program after detox, that I started experiencing what you said, which is just that I started telling the my clients, like, I don't care whether you believe you deserve to recover or not. I care that you know that being mean to yourself and beating yourself up is not going to work. And if you are invested in getting better, it doesn't matter whether you think you deserve it. It is the only way. Yes. I love that because I point this out in my book also, like self-love and self-compassion are two very different things. Mm -hmm. And you can hate yourself and still be compassionate to yourself. And if we think about other people, it's like when we show empathy Mm -hmm. or kindness or warmth to another human being, we're not telling that human being, I like you. I love you. I know you. I da 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 da. We're just saying, like, I feel your pain and I see you as a human being who deserves to not be in pain. Yeah. And I think if we go to common humanity, right, which is an essential part of self compassion, it is like you don't have to like that person to feel compassionate for them. You don't, you, you can literally just be like every human being does not deserve, right, to be in this pain and come from that place. One of the things that I learned about connection is that it can be retroactive, which I never knew until I wrote this book. And what I mean by that is like salutary choices that you make in the moment that make you feel nothing, like going to bed early. You're not immediately flooded with the sense (laughs) of like, wow, I'm really taking care of myself. I'm so proud of myself. I'm so rested. I'm so like, you just feel nothing. Salutary choices that you make in the moment are the very things that are such sources of pride later. And it's the same with, with, I hear this in grief work all the time, like when someone experiences a, a heavy loss in their life and a person, for example, leaves flowers at their door without coming in or knocking or anything. And it's like the person receives those flowers in the wake of their grief and it maybe doesn't register in the moment, mm. but two years later, and it's like the flowers are one of their first thoughts mm. because it was such a moment of connection for them. Yeah. And so using your emotions as the main barometer of whether or not you're doing the right thing, not always a good call. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like emotions are highly fluid. They're yes. dependent on like the weather, mm-hmm. whether you're hungry, whether somebody attractive just hit on you, something <laughs> you might feel totally different. It's like yes. the feelings are all over the place and, and they're just feelings. They're really yeah. not who you are. You know, they're really not. And you talked about how important it is to be accountable and understand that being kind to yourself and, and compassionate is not letting yourself off the hook. And it made me think of Dr. Barbara Fredrickson's broaden and build theory. That's the way that I like to center this thought. Yeah. She says feelings are not just end states, right? So if you can get yourself into a positive headspace, your thought action repertoire expands. So you are aware that you can make a lot of choices instead of that feeling of like just contraction. And if you, when you realize you can do a lot of different things, you can make choices that promote like future positive states. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens when you feel good. So if like, that's, you know, why if you start the morning with a run, I don't run, but I hear people do. (laughs) If you start the morning with a run, then like that makes you feel good. Then you're more likely to like eat a nutritious lunch. Yeah. And because you ate that lunch, you're more likely to whatever. So you're constantly promoting positive future states. And the same thing happens with your negative thought action repertoire. The more you make negative choices, the more you're setting yourself up. And like a punishment is a negative choice. Mm -hmm. A punishment, as I define it, is denying yourself something that you know is going to help you or connecting to something that you know is going to hurt you, you know? So I use the example of in my book of this woman, Ava, and she comes to one of my group in, in the rehab that I worked at. These stories are all fictionalized, by the way, because I don't talk about my clients' personal stories, obviously, but they all center from the the dynamic that is very true, which is and this happens a lot if you're if you're running any kinds of groups is that people come to group intoxicated. Yes. Or, you know, they tell you after this group, just so you know, I'm gonna go get wasted or something yeah. like that. So Ava comes to my group and at the end she announces to the group that she drank before group, she's been intoxicated the entire time and she's gonna continue to be intoxicated. So I, I talk with her for a little bit after group and ask her what she needs. And she says, I just want to take a hot bath. I've been cold all day. I just want to take a hot bath. But she won't let herself take a hot bath mm-hmm. because taking a hot bath is something that someone who is smarter, more, you know, mm-hmm. sober, all of these things, like that's what a healthy person would do. And she doesn't deserve to do the relaxing, restorative thing because she just fucked up in her opinion. Mm -hmm. So instead, she's going to go out and drink more, right? And none of this is registering in her mind consciously necessarily. She's not like, let me punish myself now because I'm going to engage in this punitive pattern of something. You know, we don't really think like that in our minds. Yeah. It registers as I feel like shit and I deserve it. Yeah. Absolutely. And then you go out and do more things that don't make you feel empowered, connected, healthy, safe, any of that. Yes. I totally relate to that. I think that was what was so hard because I was very bulimic. That was pretty much even before I struggled with alcohol, bulimia was really like my drug of choice as I kind of understand it. And I couldn't explain to people. I would have those thoughts of, 
what I really want is like to call someone or I really want to walk or I really want some movement or something like that. But I would feel how I described it is it's like I also got this sick satisfaction out of like twisting the knife on myself. It kind of felt like I know that this is terrible for me. I know I shouldn't be doing this, but I'm sick of bad things happening to me and I'm going to at least be in control of this. And I'm going to create this drama and this like negative cycle, but at least I'm the one who's punishing myself rather than feeling like it's the world in some way. Yes, exactly. And control is so seductive for that reason. We get back to this, the devil you know. It's like our brain is hardwired to need to predict our environment. And you can't predict healing. Mm-hmm. That is not a controlled process, you know, but you can predict hurting, mm-hmm. you know. It's really easy to control how much you hurt, right. you know. It's pretty simple. Yeah. Right. But, but healing is really random. And sometimes it's often, and I would say often, it's the, the overwhelm of like the pride and yeah. the joyfulness that send people reeling mm. because it's, we're like, what's that? Yeah. How do I feel this? How do mm. I trust that this person actually wants to be with me? Like mm. sometimes when people hear someone say, I love you, that like can trigger a relapse Absolutely. because it's like we're overwhelmed. Yeah. And you can be overwhelmed by by the difficulty of making space for joy mm-hmm. and and all of these positive seeing yourself in all these positive new lights just as as easily as you can be overwhelmed by you know seeing yourself as a failure in some way and I think we don't really understand that and so the joy comes as a, a surprise that that's like a hard thing to feel. It's like one of those good news, bad news things about healing. It's like, good news, you're going to feel more joy because you're going to become more of yourself and lead a more authentic life. Bad news, like joy is a feeling too. It's hard to feel (laughs) sometimes. Yeah. You know, it's like hard to be a human being sometimes, you know, most of the time we need, that's why we need each other. That's why we need community and connection and to understand that like whatever you're feeling, thinking, doing zero chance that millions of other people have not felt or done mm-hmm. or you know thought those exact same things that's yeah. why aa is such a bomb for so mm-hmm. many people because it's like oh i'm really not alone yeah. we intellectually concede to that understanding but in- intellect does not matter when you just fucked up you just yes. forget everything you know and i shouldn't say fucked up i should say when you make a misstep, mm-hmm. right? But that's the feeling that I'm yes. getting at is the sense of like, I failed. Yes. Yes. I wonder too, in your research and through your book and everything, do you find that there are differences with pleasure between like men and women? Is it more difficult? Because I don't know, I'm thinking about purity culture. I'm thinking about growing up. I was very much like a good girl and very much raised that I should look a certain way. I should be a certain way. This meant I was good. This sort of behavior meant I was bad. And that definitely led into my perfectionism, which then led into like bulimia because it was the secret way that I was able to still control how I looked. But then I kind of had this secret life, so to speak. And I was just wondering if you had any knowledge about do women struggle? I mean, women, I think, do tend to identify more as perfectionists and people pleasers. But what does the research say? I don't even think we need empirical studies yeah. to show that 
like if you just look at diet culture, yeah, that's true. <laughs> you can see that like we do not allow women to feel pleasure mm-hmm. in this culture. Yeah. It is a misogynistic culture in which yeah. pleasure is an immediate punishment. Hence what I call the dog clicker language around mm. diet culture of like, give yourself a treat. Yes. Give yourself a reward. You've been good this week. Let's why don't you just indulge in that chocolate? You go, girl. Like this dumb stuff that yeah. I'm like, get this dog clicker language <laughs> out of my face. It really bothers me yeah. because it treats pleasure as like, you know what? You're not here to feel good. Mm. You're here to do other things for other people and make them feel good. Yeah. Primarily your children and men. Yes. And you're here to do a bunch of labor. And I'll tell you what, if you do a really good job of this performative sense of being a human being, if you live in this one-dimensional way and you're really good at, at being busy and doing all the things for all the people all the time, every now and then you're going to get to give yourself a little ice cream sandwich or this <laughs> and that. But the, the point is, is it's like, we fall for this trap Mm -hmm. because it's not explicitly saying, look, you're not allowed to feel good. It's just like you're allowed to feel good very occasionally. And here's how with these like 100 calorie snack packs. Yes. And this is like terrible way. And the way that I see this showing up is that women conflate being selfish with feeling pleasure. They are talked about as if they're the same thing. And I... I hear messages that are like, you know what? It's okay to be selfish. Mm -hmm. You have to be selfish sometimes because you have to take care of you. And these are really well-intended messages. But I'm like, what do you mean selfish? Like, Do you mean allow yourself to feel good? Because that's not being selfish. Being selfish is about having an abundance of something and then hoarding it Mm. for yourself. deliberately. Feeling pleasure is nothing to do with giving or hoarding anything from other people. It's Mm -hmm. about yourself, right? And there is a deficit of generosity when we're talking about being selfish. Being, Mm -hmm. you know, attending to your pleasure is about saying, I need this to feel good so that I can show up just for myself and showing up as your full self happens to be typically a pretty contagious energy that helps other people feel good, right? You know that when you come home, your partner and kid like will probably feel better or good if you if you feel regulated, healthy, and good. And you know, negative feelings are also contagious. I also don't like that saying that no one can make you feel a certain way. I'm like, have you been in the room with someone <laughs> who's like screaming and doing scary things? Like it, it yes, they can. They yeah. can other people can make you feel safe, good, yeah. healthy, light. Other people can make you feel scared, mm. threatened, you know, all all of this stuff. Anyway, I I digress. Getting back to like this idea that we're telling women right now that it's okay to be selfish. It's like, stop that mm-hmm. messaging. You are not being selfish when you're attending right. to yourself. Right. You're actually being very generous. Yeah. And maybe that spills into being selfish if you accumulate all of this stuff so that your cup overfloweth. <laughs> and then with the extra stuff, you don't give it to anybody or share with anybody ever. Then, then you're being selfish. But just allowing yourself to feel pleasure is not selfish. 
Absolutely. I think that's such a good point. I think language is so important because often when we're trying to change, right, paradigms of something, if we just use the same language that exists, we're still stuck in that still, like in that paradigm, like you were saying, instead of being like, actually, we're not even talking, like, this isn't the correct word of selfishness. We're just talking about something else. Totally. And I think it also comes from this idea of a directive we give to women, which is like to find balance, Yeah, which is another thing where it's like, let me poke holes in that word for a second. Balance doesn't exist. Yeah, It is in its original construct, this very curative thing where you're talking mm. about energetic equilibrium. Yeah, Do you feel like all of yourself, not just mom mode, mm-hmm. not just work mode, not just good daughter mode, not just I feel good as a, a person mode. Yeah. Do you feel like you're able to be the full range of yourself and it feels pretty good? Then you've achieved energetic equilibrium <laughs> and you're pretty balanced, right? Yeah. But we use that word now to describe someone who is very good at being busy. Mm. So when you say like, oh, she balances her life so well, what you mean is she can have a thousand balls in the air and not drop any if you add to her schedule. Yeah. And being good at being busy has zero things to do with actual health. Women who are doing a really good job at being balanced, this goes back to the selfish component. It is true that if you seek to create internal balance as opposed to external balance, which is about scheduling and being busy, internal is about how do I feel? Do I feel good? Other people will probably suffer in some way because you're not going to have all the balls up in the air. And so it is going to cause some friction. That still is not being selfish. Yeah, That is inviting other people to try to hold up what you're also holding up, Yeah, right? Mostly inviting men <laughs> into the conversation and the day-to-day activities of like what a lot of women are expected to carry by themselves. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking about the fact that, right, we all have needs. And as women, we're kind of told that we shouldn't have needs or we shouldn't have wants or desires. So of course, people then feel selfish for wanting certain things, even though it is human, right? And it's also, right, like men aren't considered selfish as much because it is known that men want and need certain things where women are supposed to, especially mothers, I think, are not meant to be in touch with their wants or needs at all. How does guilt play into all of this? So I think every therapist agrees that (laughs) guilt says, I feel bad about what I did or did not do. And shame says, I feel bad about who I am or who I am not. And so guilt is always something to track. I don't think it's a negative emotion necessarily. It's an informative emotion Mm -hmm. like all emotions are. Um, Guilt is something to track because if you don't allow yourself time with it to understand where's this coming from, do I agree Mm. with where it's coming from, do I agree with the source info? Because sometimes the source info is just negative information coming to you from culture and that's not an expectation or value that you are aligned with personally. And sometimes the guilt is coming from, no, I'm really not attending to a value that matters to me because guilt will metastasize into shame right? if you don't keep tabs on it. So I think it's really important to look at what your values are, Yeah, right? And values are tough, again, because it's like they all sound good, like (laughs) adventurous, playful, you know, intelligent, you know, and there's all these 
different kinds of things, but I think what you need right now in this season of your life, think about that and ask yourself, like, what is really important to me? And if you're having a hard time asking that question, I mean, I have a values list in the book, but I often orient myself with like thinking about what something is not. Yeah. And I encounter a lot of like, what's not important to me? Mm. And so from a value perspective, that might look like saying, this is just a personal yeah. thing. I ha- I've discovered that tradition is not really important to me. Yeah. And so like we have certain rituals is what I now call them yeah. because a ritual to me is based on like the intention. Like mm-hmm. what is this thing we're doing for? A tradition is more of a like, we do this every year. Yeah. <laughs> There's not a lot of explanation around it necessarily. And I've I've worked with a lot of people. This came up so many times in my practice where they have a family tradition of wearing the same pajamas on on Christmas, for example. And it's like, maybe that's a fun tradition when you're little, but sometimes when people would be like 19, 25, 32, they're like, I don't want to wear these pajamas. Like this feels like a chore. And if you think about like, what is the intention of this? It's like maybe to have playfulness, you know, family unity, connection, joy, I thought, well, I can focus on rituals that can do that Mm -hmm. and have a big choice of rituals. Whereas like a tradition is more formal. And, you know, if my daughter says to me, we don't do the matching holiday PJ thing, but if we did, and that was a sort of ritual that we did every year, and then she turned nine and was like, I hate this, mommy. I don't want to do this anymore. I'd be like, no problem. What else can create playfulness, joy? you know, family, unity, connection. So tradition is not an important value to me. So that helps me Mm -hmm. guide my choices of like, hmm, airline tickets for this thing are a lot less expensive the week after this holiday. Is it important that because the holiday is on this specific date or this birthday is on this, like that I honor that? It's like, no, you know? And so once you understand what your values are and what they're not, you can use them as a screen for all of your choices. And someone should be able to like float over your life and watch the way you live and have a pretty good indication of what's important to you. I love that. I love that because I don't have a huge family, so we don't have a ton of like traditions. And I think this is a really good point too of like, right, it's obvious to say just because you see everyone in holiday pajamas on the internet, right, doesn't mean you need to do that. But I think this is a better way to phrase it of what is it that I actually want? Is it the playfulness, like you were saying, the joyfulness, a fun you know, way to commemorate something? That is the reason to take the action on doing that. And if you don't like the pajamas, right, what else could you do to bring that in? I think that makes so much sense. Right. It goes back to goal versus intention. Mm-hmm. If your goal is to get everyone in the in the pajamas and get that, you know, social media picture ready, you can do that, <laughs> you know. If the intention is to create connection, it might not look the way you were expecting it to look. And it might not be visible to other people. Yeah. And I think that's a big part of this too, is like we all need validation, right? External validation is important as social beings. It's unhealthy when it's the primary source of your sense of who you are, your worth, and all of that, but it's part of it. And so when you're leading a self-defined life in which you determine your values, 
the way that you broadcast those values may not be understood by other people, or there might not be a way to broadcast that value because there's no like degree that you could frame on the wall or like this or that or whatever. And so that stuff is all interconnected. And to go back to our conversation about selfishness and wanting, one of the questions that I think is helpful for women to ask themselves, because we're in the culture, we're not going to be inoculated from it, and we internalize a lot of this misogyny and a lot of these unhealthy directives, is let's say everyone you love and even like is taken care of at every level. Mm. They're safe, they're connected, they're thriving. What do you want? Because when so many times when I ask women what they want, they begin that definition framed around meeting the needs of others, particularly Mm -hmm. their kids. Like, I just want my kids to be happy. Yeah. Well, I just want like my family to come together in this way. Or like, I want, you know, who knows what. And it's like, I get that. And I don't, I'm not interested in being like, hey, you're thinking about it wrong, right. finger wagging stuff. It's like, I get why you're thinking about it that way. But but we're talking about you. Yeah. As a as a person. Yeah. Not as somebody else's person. Mm-hmm. So what do you want? Mm-hmm. I love that. I think that's a really, really good question. Because yeah, when you first just hypothetically posed that question, that is where my brain went. Even I think if you're not a parent, if you're a woman, often I think you do go to your friends, your family, other people in your life, your partner maybe. you know, Or I, I have a business, so people work for me and I am sometimes try to micromanage all of their happiness and I want them all to be happy and like their job and everything like that. And one thing I've been working on this year is trying to get back to my center, my values, because it can lead you so astray, I think, when Mm -hmm. you are just chasing other people's wants and needs and you totally neglect your own. You can just end up all the way down this path and feel like, how did I even get here? I didn't even feel like I chose this. Totally. Yes. And it's okay for anybody listening to want, as you're describing, your employees to be happy and, you know, feel connected at work. It's it's not that it's wrong or bad to want the people we love to be taken care of, but it is unhealthy to pursue that while you're denying your own wants as a person, because it's, it's kind of also reminds me of like this old school expression. I don't know if you've heard it, but it's like a mother can only be as happy as her unhappiest child. And it's like, wow, what a burden to place on our kids of of like codependency and teaching them that, you know, when the purpose of love is to make other people happy. Mm. And this idea that when you go out into the world and your friend is depressed or your partner is depressed or something like you love them by taking on that suffering with them. I really, as a personal point, do not believe in suffering as a form of solidarity. People who are in grief, people who are who are really hurting, do not need you to be hurting to feel connected to you. They yes. need you to be your full present self, whatever that looks like. And they actually feel burdened. And this is so true for people suffering in the midst of a clinical depressive episode. Yeah. They feel burdened by like bringing you down. Totally. Totally. I think so much with grief, right? It's not just, right? If you're someone who's struggling with grief and then other people are trying to fix you, right? Or make you, because that's often what sometimes happens with someone, then they feel guilty and more burdened also in feeling like they're not letting you like fix them. 
Right. Like not exactly like, oh, I should be accepting this help. This person wants is just trying to help. Like, why can't I just say yes? But also what happens is that the person who's not maybe depressed withholds like sharing good news. Yes. Or being like, oh my God, I went on this, you know, great interview yesterday. And it went because it's like, oh, well, I don't want to put it in the depressed person's face. And it's like, that feeling that people are walking on eggshells around yeah. you because you're so fragile and you can't handle anything is such an isolating feeling. And we do that, again, from a really well-intended place. It's not necessary or helpful. Absolutely. Well, this personally really helped me. <laughs> I feel so so lucky that I got to have this conversation with you personally and professionally and for people listening. In terms of actionable things, it sounds like, Catherine, you talked about, right, getting in touch with your values, getting more comfortable, right, with recognizing the positives, but maybe also some of the drawbacks of perfectionism. And also you talked about really checking in about what is nourishing me versus you know, what is just draining me or something that feels good in the moment. Are there any other tips or ideas or things that you have for people to kind of give them some homework at the end of this episode? Besides reading your book. Yeah, right. Well, the book is The Perfectionist's Guide to Losing Control, A Path to Peace and Power. And my editor came up with that subtitle because I was like trying to find the right subtitle that wasn't like, this is how to be happy. Yeah. Right? Because it's like, happiness isn't even the goal. It's right. like really about how to feel like who you are in the world. Yeah. And like that to me, that that's what peace really reflects. Yeah. I would say another thought is understanding like what kind of help you need. Mm. So I think a lot of us hear the phrase like it's okay to ask for help and we're like, yeah, I know, but you know, it's overwhelming sometimes when you're the person who needs help. And so I created buckets in the book of different kinds of help you need, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're starting a podcast and you're really overwhelmed, your stress response is activated, you're like, I need so much help. That is not a helpful way to think. Yeah. Because it doesn't organize your thoughts into like action taking places. If you're like, I need informational help Mm -hmm. about like what the best microphone is. That is a helpful thought because you're like, then you think, who could I go to for that? Or what could I read online about that? And it kind of like makes this feeling, which is so amorphous and big, a little more bullet pointed. Yeah. Right. And so understanding that there's this help that is talked about a lot in the therapeutic world of like emotional help mm-hmm. is not the only kind of help there is. Sometimes we don't want to talk to other people about what we're feeling and how hard it is. And that's okay. You can still get other help. There's tangible help of like, I need to come home to a clean house, right? Like who can clean my kitchen? And you can text people and say, you know, like being able to ask for help isn't just about like, I need to like be totally emotionally vulnerable with Mm -hmm. you. And help is, you know, there's community help, there's financial help, there's all these different kinds of help. And being able to understand like what what kind of help would offer me the most utility in this moment, often for new moms, that's like tangible help. Yeah. Right? I need I need all these bottles cleaned. I need this, I need that. I should say new parents. And so I think that is a helpful, like little tiny tool. I love that. I love that. Yeah. I think help is such a broad concept that it is very easy to get lost in it, essentially. Mm -hmm. It sounds like such a big thing. 
sometimes what you need is a friend to send you dumb memes all day. <laughs> and you can text that person and say, like, I am not feeling like myself. I really need you to bump up the dumb memes today. <laughs> like, that's help. That I counts. That. Like, help doesn't have to be this big, life-changing therapy, including thing, yeah. you know? Absolutely. I love that. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Catherine, for coming on. Where can people learn more about you? Thank you so much for having me. I love this conversation and I really love your work too. I'm on Instagram at Catherine Morgan Schaffler. And that's also the name of my website, CatherineMorganShaffler.com. And the book is The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control, A Path to Peace and Power. And it's available anywhere on Audible, everywhere you buy books amazing. And we will have all those linked in the show notes. So thank you so much, Catherine. And I would love to have you back because I feel like we could have done like 10 different conversations here. A hundred percent. Anytime I would be so happy to come back. Awesome. Thanks for listening. To suggest an episode topic or support my work, visit amandaewhite.com. If you're interested in getting therapy from my practice, visit therapyforwomencenter.com. We're based in Philadelphia, but we have therapists serving 27 states across the country. 